Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast. New intro. <laughs> yeah, here we are. We're live today, actually on Facebook. We have people joining us. This is the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast, the only podcast dedicated to making you a faster cyclist. This is where we answer all your cycling and triathlon related questions, and you can submit them to us at trainerroad.com slash podcast. I'm here with our head coach, Chad Timmerman. Hi, everybody. Our CEO, Nate Pearson. Hello. <laughs> and we are going to get into um, a few things before we go into the questions. Uh, firstly, for those of you that joined us just a few weeks ago, we had a live, our first actual live recording at the Rafa Cycle Club in San Francisco with Matt Fitzgerald. That was a ton of fun. It was good. It was a blast. Someone just yesterday told me how good it was. Yeah. And I believe them. <laughs> uh, we missed Chad. Uh, Chad wasn't able to make it. Um, he'll be at the next one, uh, I'm sure. So yeah. yeah, you watched it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah. It was awesome. I th we did a deep dive on sports psychology for anybody that hasn't looked into it and how you can use the brain to get faster. Um, and a lot of actionable tips on that too, mm -hmm. which was, I, I feel like pretty cool. So if you haven't listened to it, stop, go back, listen to it. We did a group ride thereafter. It was a ton of fun. Dude, fast people. Yeah. It was kind of funny because it was a broad, like really broad spectrum of, of abilities, right? That we had, but I was shocked. We're going up one of the climbs and I'm like, man, this is actually like a really, this is a pretty darn fast group ride. Uh, and then I was like, well, everybody uses trainer road. I guess it makes sense, you know, but, <laughs> but I think yeah. too, uh, we had just listened to that podcast and people were going hard. I know yeah. we went into, what is it? Hawk Hill. It's a Hawk famous Hill, climb yeah. outside the Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah. And leading into that, I think I did, it was like 400 watts for like three minutes or something into the climb before we started the climb. Yeah, yeah. Like it it's was, one. so if you were on that ride, that was a hard pace. Okay. <laughs> uh, awesome. Jamie was our leader, right? Yep, he that was. That dude was fit. Yes. And uh, Train road user, yep. mountain biker. When uh, he wanted awesome. to push it, it strung out. Yeah. But it was fun and we all regrouped. So yeah. it was fun. We regrouped regularly. Is it there were PRs all over the place and I looked at everybody's rides, Beautiful. you know, everyone well, was PR Strava does that new thing though, that if it's your first time doing the segment, <laughs> you get, you a, get PR. a PR, which is very annoying. Yeah. Cause yeah. you can't tell where a real PR is and where just like the first time you wrote it. Yeah, so exactly. I had like every segment was a PR cause I've never been there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for everybody else though, that had ridden yeah. those things, oh, those yeah. roads before it was, it was good awesome. weather. Did you guys get rained on? It was, it was like not a San Francisco day. It was sunny and <laughs> beautiful. Yeah, awesome. it was pretty amazing. Like at first it was a little cloudy and we all had rain gear on, but clear dried up. It was awesome. Thank you for everybody that came and for everybody that tuned into the live podcast on Facebook, like you're doing now. Uh, thank you so much. It was a ton of fun. Uh, we will be doing more of those, by the way. Uh, we had a bunch of suggestions on different places to go. And we know roughly like, you know, where people listen to the podcast uh, around the world too. So uh, we're going to use that to guide things, but we'll announce that. And once we get to the point of planning that, and I'm sure also thanks to the folks at Rafa, they did oh, yeah. an awesome job. That's a cool shop. It was great. Coffee right? was really good too. Yeah, it was a good place. Well, I, I wouldn't know, but it was a good place. So yeah. I have some comments that were on our first Facebook live one. <laughs> okay. Um, you want to share the comments? I right? do. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> first comment. Um, there's a lot of comments like this, but Jonathan's hair game is on point. A lot gotcha. of people were impressed with your hair. Yeah. It's yeah. a surprising thing. <laughs> yeah. Th those are the important things in life. Yep. I guess. Second yeah. one. Yeah. Jonathan's hair game is so strong. I feel inadequate. And that was actually <laughs> sent in from uh, Coach Chad Timmerman. Ah, there we are. <laughs> <laughs> people on the live. <laughs> very much. Live was not. <laughs> I mean, I, I dig his hair. I just, uh, you guys, you guys in your hair. Um, no, no one said it about me. It was all about Jonathan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, someone said, wow, Nate looks younger and cooler than you would imagine based on just the audio podcast. <laughs> That's, like, That's great. I don't know if like, is that a compliment that or not? Like, I don't know. That's great. Do I, I don't know why it's if a I sound old or whatever. Exactly. 
And then uh, the, this one I, I kind of threw me for a loop. Uh, does Nate have any severed heads in his freezer? Sure looks like it. <laughs> I think that he was referencing American Psycho. I think so, because I, I sent him back a little picture of... Uh, with the hair. Christian Bale with Patrick Bateman. Yeah. But I also looked up the top um, like occupations with psychopaths. <laughs> number one. CEO. CEO. Yeah. I'm not surprised. <laughs> number two, lawyer. But number funny. three uh, is uh, media person, television or radio. And that's what we're doing right now. So I've <laughs> got one and three, yeah, and you guys three. are three. It's kind of a done deal. Exactly, I know. So if you haven't you, started. I wouldn't make jokes like that about me. Mm. Yeah. Who knows what will happen? Thanks. Yeah. Just kidding. You won't do Just that, kidding. I promise. That's uh, not a threat. It's a promise. Thanks, everybody, for <laughs> thanks everybody for joining us. Uh, it was a ton, a, ton, a ton of fun, so we appreciated it. Uh, Chad, I know uh, you weren't able to make it, but you wanted to send out some thank yous. Yeah, this has nothing to do with the Rafa podcast. This is just a couple of random thank yous. Um, a while back, we interviewed Emmett Kelly, the, the Irish triathlete who broke his collarbone in Kona Super when fast. he was there preparing for Kona. Super good guy. He brought me some butter or some butter, some butter. As, he, as he put <laughs> butter. it. And I've made my way through all of it. He brought me three pounds of it. And I assume it was supposed to be a pound for each of us, but it all went home with me and it all got consumed three by me. Pounds sticks? Uh, pounds sticks. I mean, they were oh, wow. big wads of butter. Kilos. Yeah. How many kilos? No, they <laughs> kilos. They're, but either way, super good butter. Thank you very much, Emmett. And you are you're right. It is better than Marigold or Kerrygold. <laughs> Emmett brought this from Ireland. Yeah, yeah. In he his went to pretty great to Hawaii. Kept it refrigerated in his luggage. Got it to us in Kona, which was no easy feat either. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, really, really kind gesture with a broken collarbone. Yeah, yeah. On top of it all. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then on, uh, additionally, Andy Burbage sent me a book, and I wish I could remember the name of it, but it's about an ultra endurance runner who's doing uh, one of those races in Mount Mount Treblanc or Mount, Mount Blanc. Oh, Mount Blanc. Uh, uh, Mont Tremblant. I don't know. I'm, I'm literally I don't know. 20 pages into it. Enjoying it so far, but I just wanted to thank Andy. It was yet again a really nice gesture. Awesome. Very cool. Uh, something else that we shared recently that uh, everybody should check out if you're a mountain biker, for sure. But if you're not a mountain biker, still check this out. Even if you're a triathlete, I think that there are a ton of principles in the how to become a faster mountain bike mountain biker video and blog post that we have. And you can also listen to a podcast where we discuss a lot of these principles that we cover in those pieces. Uh, but we covered a ton of stuff that it's had a huge a really positive response yeah. and people that are triathletes, people that are professional enduro racers, all the way down to, you know, all of us, just average folks. All the way been, down to me. You know, yeah. Like everybody's <laughs> been, I, I feel like it's helped everybody. Yeah. It's pretty cool. So, so to give you guys an idea too, uh, on YouTube, this is our fastest growing video that I think we've ever done for, in terms of views. Mm -hmm. And it's a positive feedback. Cause I think people learn how to really be faster mountain biker. So yeah. give them the content and they like it. So it's, it really is a good video. And if you enjoyed uh, Lee's podcast, this is like just more visual aspect of what he was talking about. Yeah, we truly were aiming to make that useful, not just an excuse for us to do something rad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's the the key is if we can make you guys faster, that's the focus of everything we do. So um, we also uh, will be, and this is a teaser of sorts, but uh, we will be working on how to make you a faster something else on a mountain biker uh, coming down the road. So, not a mountain biker. Not a mountain biker. No dirt. No dirt. Thank uh, God. Yeah, people can, people can <laughs> uh, a break from the rest <laughs> easy. Uh, so something else is coming down the down the pipes there and we'll be actively working on it in the next little bit. Uh, another thing I wanted to share, and this is a lot of things that we're covering beforehand, but uh, we just posted another video about how cyclists can avoid losing fitness while traveling. And the reason that I'm bringing this up is we get so many, mm -hmm. so many people asking these questions. Especially this time. Exactly. Uh, you're traveling for holidays or you're traveling for business and you don't want to mess up your training plan. So we give you some really like actionable and practical tips on how to be able to train. Yeah, and even if you're not traveling, just a 
uh, training interruption. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. And this is the uh, day before Thanksgiving. Yeah. A lot of people are going to be traveling. Yeah. And I was thinking too, we're live today. This is like one of the least productive days, I think, in like America <laughs> oh, because it's sure. the day before Thanksgiving and Probably nobody a works. good time to have a live podcast where people can just I watch know. things. <laughs> you guys just watch it. <laughs> yeah, Your exactly. boss doesn't care. It's okay. <laughs> and then uh, Nate, before we get into the questions, you also had uh, a couple other things to add. Really yep. Um, uh, a TR user, Bob, I can't say his Pankratz, Pankratz. I always want to call him Pankrat, but Pankratz. that's not his last name. <laughs> no. <laughs> he gave me an idea or sent me this, this really cool thing. It's $9 on Amazon US. It is a remote control to turn on like uh, kind of like a remote control power strip almost. You plug it into your outlet and you have a little like key fob and you turn it on, it turns power to the outlet. So I hooked up, I have two fans daisy chained mm-hmm. and I can start my workout and then I just push a button and it turns on. Then nice. afterwards I can turn That's it off. Handy. I don't have to touch my fans. Sometimes too, you get your fan just angled just right and then yeah. you, you like turn it and it gets a little wrong and you get on and off, on and off. <laughs> it is so nice and it's called... Um, the Woods 32555WD Outdoor Wireless Remote Control Kit, weatherproof, 100 feet. Basically, on Amazon, this is what you need to write down if you're listening to the podcast. W2555, sorry. 32555WD. That's right. 32555WD. A little awesome. dyslexia there. But it is <laughs> cheap too. Ten nine, bucks, huh? nine dollars. Nine it's like 909 or something. Oh, wow. Um, Sweet. I know. It is, doing it. it is awesome. So thanks, Bob. Nice. That's a good tip. A little marginal gain. Because I know right now, especially it's colder and I yep. get into the garage, I do not want my fan on me in the morning if yep. I'm wor- doing my workout. So then once I can get warm and everything else, then mm-hmm. I'll turn it on. That's smart. Mm-hmm. That's really good. Uh, let's get into the first question from Gerard. He says, good day team. Thank you for your wonderful series of podcasts. I've gained a lot of insight from your discussions and it has helped me understand a couple things much better. Often it is mentioned that a higher cadence, and he references above 95 RPM, is preferred over a lower cadence due to the body being more efficient at those levels, if I understand correctly. Let's say we fix the power level to 300 watts, and I ride at a cadence of 85 RPM, and then later at the same power of 300 watts at a cadence of 95 RPM, so a difference of 10 RPM there. Why is my heart rate lower at the lower cadence? If the body is more efficient at 95, then my reasoning tells me that the heart rate should be lower at 95. What am I missing? Thank you again, kind regards. This is a really common question of of different variants of it. So we'll attack it. Yeah, so people are always wondering why, you know, why do we push toward a higher cadence? And and basically we're just trying to limit the muscular demand. Um, That when you think about what, what power is, it's, it's velocity times force, right? And in our case, it's circumferential velocity or torque, right? So it's how hard you push on the pedals and how quickly you push on the pedals. So if you want to maintain that 300 watts and you're turning at a, a 95 RPM, that's a pretty quick cadence. So not really forceful pedal strokes. But then you drop that down to 85 RPM, then you know, you're know you sacrificing some of the speed. You got to make up for that to maintain that same power output, which means you have to push a little more forcefully. When you push a little more forcefully, you shift the demand to different fiber types. So, so the, the slow twitch fibers or the aerobic, the really high uh, uh, fatigue resistant fibers can't shoulder the load anymore. So now you start recruiting your your, your faster twitch fibers. And and you, you, consequently, you know, those are the anaerobic fibers. So you start using a little less oxygen. So that's a little less blood blood through the circulation, a little less, you know, tax it, or you, you don't tax the heart quite as hard. Now you're working, working a little more anaerobically, but that's where the exchange comes. And I like this to like 
to prove it to yourself, try going down to like 20 RPM, yeah. right? Because yeah. that's you can go down to the extremes and you can really feel it then. Yeah. Where you might not be able to feel the difference in your muscles, like just between 95 and 85, yeah. but it's there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And if you were to like, like that's a good example of taking an extreme, right? Yeah. So, but let's assume that you're still maintaining that 300 watt number we're talking about, but at 20 RPM, you're going to feel like you're going to push your shin through your skin. Cause you have to put out so much torque through yeah, those yeah. pedals at such yeah. a low speed. Right. Um, then as you get up to like 180 RPM, it's hard to be efficient. I mean, I mean, not even 180, 120. but higher up, you just like you're not pushing your body can't do yeah, it. Yeah, And part of that, I think people miss the point is, is if you have some sort of flaw in your pedal stroke, it's a lot easier to control that flaw or that, you know, the wavering knee or whatever it is at 80 RPM than it is at 120 RPM. And on top of it, you're magnifying it. So, so if you make that error 80 times a minute, now you're making it 120 times per minute. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I, I see a lot of triathletes specifically, you know, picking a lower cadence. And then mm -hmm. I see like, um, you know, track cyclists obviously have to have a broad range that yeah. they can be effective at, but usually they tend obviously it, toward the I've higher. I've heard solid arguments for the triathlon crowd to do this lower cadence. A lot of people argue, argue that it slows down your running cadence. Some people argue that it preserves the muscles such so that you can run better. Mm -hmm. I mean, there, there are strong arguments on both sides of it. I, I choose not even to get into it because they are pretty equally balanced. I've mm -hmm. heard of people saying like, you should have your uh, cycling cadence the same as your running cadence, like 85. Yeah, you know, that, Christy yeah. Wellington famously had like an 85 is a good example. cadence for Ironman. Some people say for Ironman, you want to have a slower cadence. Mm. I don't, I haven't seen any like studies to show that. Um, and I don't think even if like top pros do it, they might just do it because other top pros do it. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. uh, before Lance, everyone had a slow cadence because yep. everyone had a slow cadence. Yep. And then Lance didn't. And now everyone had a high one. And now yep. it's kind of shifted back mm -hmm. down. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of tricky. It, I'm in the my I'm in my mind self-selected cadence, like where it feels good, as long as between mm -hmm. that like 80 and 110, yeah, is probably yeah. best. But be able to ride at all cadences because that's, you never know what could happen. Sure, that's a very good point, and I think that I've seen a lot of people. Uh, for example, uh, you know, in mountain biking specifically, you deal with such crazy pitches and crazy mm -hmm. changes in terrain like that that you find yourself in situations where you have to be able to be effective at 50 RPM. Uh, just thinking of single track six, I, that long thing that we did, you know? I, I just watched a World Cup cross race and someone named Van won because they're all named Van over there. <laughs> Vanderpool, yeah. Yeah, it's all Van something. Yeah. Is it the one on the coast in Denmark? Yes. Such there, cool race. So many times I would see them and this it was good to watch pros race because it they'd go to something steep and it almost looked like they got caught in the wrong gear and they'd get down to really low RPM. Mm. And I would probably be like, during the during the time where I got caught, I would try to shift uh -huh. into an easier gear, but they would just muscle through it at a lower gear, and then I'd the same every it must have been a gearing thing because every um, mm -hmm. lap we did the same thing, mm -hmm. but it was just they're able in my mind the takeaway was they were able to ride at a lower cadence, uh -huh. um, at different parts of the course and not be freaked out at it, exactly. right? Exactly. Because you ever get caught out in a low cadence oh, and yeah. you're like, oh, I'm in the wrong gear. This is, this is, it just feels not good. Something that we saw, not this year at Kona, but the year before, we were right when riders were getting out of the water onto their bikes and heading up and they go up that tiny little, you know, that hill, yeah. I, I think Polani, right? Uh, it might be a different road. But they go up this little hill and a lady took off and her bike uh, wouldn't shift, right? And she was stuck, stuck in, in the, the gear. Ring. And I hear that every year at Kona or even in, in just different triathlons, like people, something has happened 
and their bike is stuck in a less than ideal gear. <laughs> that happened and, to me at Isserman. Yeah, and if uh -huh. that happens, then you know you, you, either your whole day can completely fall apart, or you're the type of person that's trained at a wide range of cadences within reason. You know, you aren't spending mm -hmm. too much time well, down at one. Rigoberto Iran won a stage of the tour this year stuck in the small ring. He sprinted oh, yeah. for, for a victory in the small ring because he had to. So obviously, a guy who can generate a lot of leg speed. Yeah, there's yeah. mechanicals and there's course. So you might you, you might be a triathlete or road racer, be like, or I rode roads. Different. You may be a triathlete and say, oh, I never need to do different cadences, yeah. but you have that issue. Like my front derailleur had a problem during the race and I couldn't shift down. Yeah. Exactly. You don't want to be a one trick pony anyway. No. So you, you want to have a you know, pretty wide array of capabilities. And I think it makes uh, workouts more entertaining, really. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It like, makes the time go by faster totally. to do different totally things. Totally does. So the other point I want to bring up on this is sometimes people focus too much on um, the like, like parts of the equation and not the result. Mm -hmm. So like my heart rate... My heart rate is two beats a minute lower when I do this cadence, but can I really put out any more watts? Yeah. Right? Like, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. it always comes down to performance. Exactly. Always. And there's you a always lot of have to view it through that lens. I mean, whatever change you make, if you can't step back and say, yes, that improved my performance, then is it worthwhile? And when you say performance, like we're not talking about your heart rate. We're not talking about that. We're talking about if it made you faster. Yep. That's, that's Typically, what we're talking yeah. about. There'll, right? there'll be so many products that will like something in your body that'll change, uh, you know, they'll, they'll do something and they'll say your, uh, your blood lactate will be points, whatever different. Yeah. And that's, that's where the study ends mm. because they look at the Watts and the Watts don't change. Right. Like for me, I don't care what really changes inside. All I want is like more Watts. You know what I mean? Mm. I think a lot of, a lot of, uh, uh, inflammation is down X, Y, Z, but they can't right. really yep. relate it to better recovery or something like that. Yeah. In, in the end, I think that something that I've noticed with cadence specifically is the fact that I can, if I train myself at a specific cadence for a while, I, my body normalizes or finds a level of efficiency there. You know, at first it will feel foreign. It might be difficult. Yeah, that's the argument for self-selected cadence. I mean, yep. it goes back to we do what we do most, we end up doing best. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's that idea. Yeah. And, and with, my self-selected cadence, I don't spend extended periods of time outside of 85 to nine to 95. I try to stay within there, Yeah. but you know, the nature of it, I'm not freaked out when I have to ride at 110, even 115, even 120. And, I, and the same thing goes for 60 because but to, I explore to it. Make this useful though, Ger Gerhard, if that's how you pronounce it. Um, you, what it comes down to is you kind of have to keep all this in the perspective of what your event durations and demands are. Mm. So, you know, if you're an hour long time trialist, you can put this, you, you can make this as anaerobic as you want to. You're probably not going to run out of glycogen inside of an hour. Mm -hmm. But if you're an Ironman triathlete or even a mountain biker is going to be out there for two, three, four hours, again, can you, can you mash on the pedals forcefully for three or four hours? Probably not. So yeah. you have to, you have to kind of balance all of this with, you know, what works best based on the event and, and its demands. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, keep in mind, I just want uh, one quick kind of I could see people thinking this is an edge case, thinking of single speed mountain bikers, how those guys will just push a really heavy gear. Remember the fact that since they're on a single speed mountain bike, as soon as things start to turn downhill and get to the point where they would be spinning too quickly, they're putting zero watts into those pedals, right? Like yep. they're, they're, they're freewheeling or they're just barely spinning their legs, but it's actually not, doesn't have any resistance. So even though they're pressing hard, they are getting the, the nature of single speed riding is you press extremely hard, but then you also are forced to rest. Right. Whereas if you had gears, you could shift up and then have the responsibility to keep pushing, but with single speed, then you just focus on efficiency and rolling. So there's always a way, um, there's a way around that, I guess, uh, is the point. It's not quite, I would say an edge case that gets around this. So, 
uh, David. And this David was actually with us at the live recording in San Francisco. So uh, he says, hey, guys, thanks for a great podcast. And thanks for keeping me company while driving home from the cyclocross races here in California. My question is a bit different from the usual, I guess. I believe I've heard you guys talk about being dads and how to work and how to fit in um, work, life, family with a training schedule. I've just entered my new life as a dad two weeks ago, living in San Francisco, and I love cyclocross racing. Um, I was hoping to go to nationals in Reno in January. Obviously, training has been reprioritized very low, and being a dad and not sleeping has been prioritized very high. I saw my fitness numbers drop quite fast, but have still managed to get a few rides in for the 30 minutes to one, one and a half hour mark every now and then. On to my specific questions. What do you think I should focus on in these short training rides in order to be able to peak again in January? My goal now for nationals, and he's cat three in the 30 to 35 division, is just to show up and have fun. And if I get dead last, then so be it. Uh, let's let's cover that one first. Okay, I mean, we've kind of talked about this before in terms of, you know, what type of fitness you need based on, in, in when it comes to cycle crossing, you can race it a whole number of ways. So you could be the guy who's short or quick and punchy and stays toward the front. You can be the guy who uh, maybe lets the field go away and reels and back in, so relies on, on greater muscular endurance. Mm. So, you know, with that in mind, I would recommend training, you know, which of those approaches works best for you. Uh, I would guess you're probably going to have to be one of the guys who kind of fights for placement. I mean, obviously you're not going to get mm. seated well. Well, I can't say that for sure, but in any case, I don't think your fitness is going to be topped off and, and most of the people coming to nationals are going to be exactly that. So I have a feeling you're going to be trying to hold position, in which case you're going to try to grow your muscular endurance more than anything. So that's, that's a good point. This is going to be a, a weird, this, I think this would be different than our normal advice because this one at nationals, when he's a cat three, mm -hmm. he's going to be for points. There's going to be a bunch of guys who are cat one, who probably should be a pro mm -hmm. lining up there and they're going to just below, I mean, they're going to be super duper fast, right? Yeah. And, and peaked and just ready, exactly, to, yeah. ready to do like the best what they can do best. The best in the U S and that's for cat one. You're saying, well, it's cat one, two, three. Yeah. Right. So well, there's, it'll there's, be, yeah, it'll be separated, but yeah, they'll be picked separately, but they will be raced together. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, and then there's the, there's another race two days before mm -hmm. I think, yeah, that mm -hmm. he could do, which would probably have the same guys in it, but it's the non-championship race. Yeah. Um, so anyways, I don't think. No matter what he does, I don't think he's going to be able to like really hold on to the, to the, to the national. Oh, progress. no, no. You know, but something that comes to mind is when you start in the back of a cyclocross pack, uh, and when you start at the front, it's this way, but when you start at the back, you have some serious surging going on. Oh, there's always going to, always going to be surging. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just the nature of it. It's like riding a criterium and expecting not to surge. It's yeah. just the, the nature of mass start racing and certainly on a course that has varied terrain. Yeah. But so if he's only going to be able to do just a couple hours a week mm -hmm. and 30 minutes to one and a half, they have to be very specific intense hours, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. I'd focus on VO2 max work. So again, going back to those two and three minute intervals, mm -hmm. I mean, you can break it down and make it a little more interesting if you want to do 30, 30s or minute on minute off sort of stuff, but you're going to get the most bang for your buck out of those two and three minute efforts. Yeah. Yep. Um, I'm thinking of, uh, apple orchard is a workout that I've done actually that yeah, those two, those are, the, it up, those are the ones good. that have the low recovery valleys. So they only are the high recovery valleys where they only go back to 88%. So those are the very race like ones. And I would absolutely involve some of those two, but I think you need build more of a, a basic form of uh, high aerobic capacity fitness. And that's going to be with those longer, those longer two and three minute efforts with longer recovery valleys. Yeah. So one-to-one -one rest. You just pretty much look rest. at the cross plans and yeah, do that. Yeah. 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 And pluck them out. You'll see. I mean, that's, that's yeah. basically. And he could even do another strategy for this knowing with kids is to do, he could look at like the high volume plan, mm -hmm. remove the, uh, 
the like the endurance workouts, uh -huh. just pick the most intense ones. Because sometimes you might have 90 minutes on one day and then you'll have 90 minutes four days yeah. later and you could do two 90 minute really intense workouts yeah. from the high volume plan. And I don't think any of the high intensity workouts are longer than 90 minutes. Yeah. yeah. Then you can skip though the fillers. I'm just saying you can, uh, totally. my point is you can adjust the plans to mm -hmm. make it fit for you where you may look at the low volume be like, ah, 60, 60, that's not going to be, you know, I have 30 mm -hmm. more minutes and it's really precious to me. Yeah. And, and I know he's a fit, fit guy too. Yeah. And the mid volume plans escalate that duration to more like 75 minutes and then the high volume more like 90 minutes. Yeah. But in any case, any of those high intensity workouts, you yeah. really can't drag them out past 90 minutes and make them productive anyway. And he could totally, um, to his schedule with a little kid changes, right? So mm -hmm. one day he might have 90 and another day he might have 60. Yeah. So you could go yeah. like to the different plans, right? And pick a 60 intense workout, then go back to high, sure. then go to mid one day when he has 75. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah. you know. Yeah, it's tricky. Uh, he actually asks about that. He says, could you guys talk a little bit about how you felt and how you transitioned to being a dad and also work and train hard at the same time? Maybe you had similar experiences. And this is what he shares. He says, the way I see it uh, is that cycling and training is such a big part of me and getting on the bike, whether I'm at home or outdoors, is a way to keep me and the family sane. But I might be wrong. Uh, so far, I definitely don't feel like I'm neglecting anything and I'm really enjoying my new life as a dad, especially enjoying my son. Um, but he mentions the fact that his training's dropped, you know, from 10 to tw from 10 to 12 hours to three to four hours a week. Um, so how, how did you, yeah. I mean, Nate, I got a lot of opinions. You and I have been in this and three so. to four hours a week. Um, he said he was at 315 FTP at 165 pounds. Yeah. Can't Chad, can't you maintain if you're doing intensity kind of maintain around oh, yeah. that? I mean, he's not going to be really super durable, but Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, three or four hours. Yeah, if he can, if he does those, spends those three, three or four hours um, proper, properly, appropriately. Yeah, yeah. which and, means and doing you know focused on structure and high quality. Yeah, yeah. basically and what we just intensity. said. Yeah. And then into uh, so that that would be over what like we have six seven weeks until cross nationals probably. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So during that, you're doing all in high high intensity stuff. I'm guessing he wouldn't need a big taper at all. Because he's only doing three to four mm -hmm. when he can usually handle 10 to 12. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He so, might not need any taper at all. So he might be actually pretty, uh, be pretty, good pretty setup. good. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. He'll come in probably pretty, pretty fresh. Yeah. yeah um, I wouldn't concern myself with the taper. Not on well, three, not four fresh because of the baby, yeah. but yeah, let's cover those challenges really okay. quick though, because well, like, this is all ideal. And the one thing that I, so, um, thinking of the newborn stage, ours, my, my training was just never predictable. That was the tough thing. Like I've heard people say like the baby's asleep and I can train. And for me, at least it was not that way. Cause if my son was asleep, there was no telling how long he'd be asleep for. We kept him to a really strict schedule and everything else, but still, no, you can't you, control it. You can't control it. So that was really, and I've heard some people their their baby's very like structured with that and their baby just sleeps and it's always an hour or something. And the that's liars. great. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Cause with me, it was not that way. So the hard part for me was the theory of a plan was frustrating to me a lot of the time because yep. I would have something laid out in front of me, but then it, every single week it would get derailed. Yeah. yeah. Could you maintain any level of consistency? No. And that's the, the hard part. And yeah. that's what I've found. I, we've talked about this before you know, my training or my, my, my performance on the bike is the best when I am consistent, like consistency. I know we talk a lot about, you know, the exact intensity that you're working at and everything else. And all that is very important, but without consistency, it doesn't matter. Exactly. I'd argue that's the most important aspect it of is. training. It's really like 80, 80, 90%, I think is <laughs> yeah. like to do the work. Like it depends on what workouts you're doing. Cause you can take two people that are consistent. And one just goes outside and rides. Another does like quality, exactly. but, but it's huge it, that, and it's pretty much quality and consistency. If you do those two, you're like 98% of the way there. Yeah, yeah right? exactly. So how did you, how did you oh, yeah, keep there's a, training? There's going? a few things. 
One, um, read a study that men who hold babies have lower testosterone. So oh don't boy. hold your baby. Just kidding. I always see though. I, I see like. I just see like no. It's, it's from what I've one study said uh, that's true. And I always see like Tour de France riders who just had a baby. I'm like, oh, they're gonna lose some watts. Don't, don't touch that. But baby. obviously, touch your. <laughs> that's funny. Hold your kids. Um, so I actually my first kid. I was trying to race to launch trainer row before my first kid was born, but I didn't make it. So while my like I launched trainer row at the same time that like oh, it was like with a one month tough. old. Um, it was hard. Yeah. yeah. And I, um, I initially like stopped working out for both, like for a year for both kids being born Yeah. because that with the business impossible. And I gained weight broke, and yeah. stuff yeah. and, oh, and yeah. it was each time. And I, you know, I had a high FTP and then every time I started over 180, ah, which was like frustrating. It's frustrating. Relative to you. We actually had somebody, I'm going to, sorry, I'm going to jump in really quick. We had somebody mentioning the fact that like you dropped down to 200 and they were like, I would give my left leg to drop to 200, but <laughs> yeah, it's all relative. relative. But I was yeah. like relative, 210 remember. pounds at 180. Yeah. So yeah, it's all that's, relative. That's not, not a good not going, ratio. Not going very fast at that. <laughs> yeah. Don't <laughs> that Watts when you're, uh, around. when your pounds are higher than your Watts. Yeah. It's, well, that, that, but that's that's where a lot of people start, though. So, oh, yeah, that's where I started. Exactly. Right? And so, came a long way too each it, time. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so let's. That's so. I gave up on it, but if there's a few, I don't know. We talk about you first. I want to talk about yeah. the different stages of a yeah. baby and what my wife did because my yeah. wife trained all the way through. Okay. So yeah, going so, to that, or you want to talk about you? Yeah. Let me. I found. So I found that the easiest time to, to train wasn't that the newborn stage was tough because my wife had just had the baby and, and, you know, that was really tough. So the newborn stage was tough, but then after that, there was like a window from around like six months until about nine or about 10 months or so that was relatively easy. He was just starting to crawl at that point. And then now this is the toughest time actually that I have. And he's just about a year and a half. So it's the hardest time because he's learning about everything. He's walking around, he's getting into stuff. So it's like a really high maintenance time period. You just can't, you can't sacrifice. Like if you leave him alone for 30 seconds, like my son has found like a, a butcher knife and, and a hairdryer and he's about to put it or a toaster <laughs> and he's about to put it in a bathtub. Right. <laughs> so like, um, but so I found that this is like a really hard stage. I was able to maintain three to five hours of training. Uh, good. For all throughout it. Yeah. And, and the main way that I did that was basically finding a window. And a lot of it was talking to my wife and saying, okay, can I have an hour here? And then if I have an hour there, then I'll give you an hour plus you know, more <laughs> to, to be able to come uh, mm -hmm. to pay that back. So that's how we were able to work together to help me do that. And I was able to, this year, I was able to maintain fitness. Um, I was able to specify that fitness within reason too for specific things, but I didn't see many improvements, right? Uh, yeah, so you so. could just expect to do that, maintain your fitness. Yep. You know, if, you, if you want to keep racing, just expect you're not going to see your best results. It's mm -hmm. just going to be more more for the fun of it, which sounds like what's what he's after That's anyways. A huge mental thing is you have yeah. to say, hey, I'm just going to maintain and not build or else you get frustrated. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Managing expectations with yourself is key with that. And something to keep in, uh, just to put some numbers to it, like uh, I had dropped down to probably about 275 FTP. Um, and normally if I'm like, you know, uh, starting a base season, I'm probably somewhere around 285. So I dropped down to like 275 and then I was able to maintain and float around 290 this year. Right. So usually if I'm getting into like peak season, I want to see around 310, uh, somewhere around there, maybe even up to 315 would be great. But, uh, I was able to just hover around at 290. Scale back those expectations. Yeah. And realistic. You know, that's still pretty good. I mean, yeah, it's still, special. no, it is. He's but, special. 
Yeah. But, but if you can start, if you can get your fitness to a high point prior to having your child and then just accept that you're going to do everything you can to keep it there, yeah. that might be a more realistic approach. And, and you know what it did was it forced me this year to look at so many little things to get, like I kind of looked at it like my training is somewhat limited and I just have to follow things you know, as I can, but I'm going to look at every other aspect of my performance or strategy on the bike to be better. And I feel like I'm much... I'm much better at pacing. I'm much better at strategically reading a race, especially a mountain bike race. Uh, those can be really tough because a lot of the time you, you kind of don't think there is strategy and everybody's just going out. But I found that it kind of forced me to be more efficient in other areas, which is cool. So, so for those who don't have kids, Chad, listen up. Here are the <laughs> stages that happen. Uh, when your baby's first born, uh, they sleep a ton, right? Mm -hmm. This is actually one of the easiest times, I'm sorry, parents, yeah, yeah. uh, you don't, you don't think it is, but it is one of the easiest times you have to get up a lot at the night. Um, you can do training and what we did, we got a little like pack and play, mm. which is a little crib. We put that in the room with the trainer and you put the baby in there. <laughs> and if you do, um, I suggest if you are doing intervals, um, you know, like play VO2 max, where if in between your baby gets up and you have to do something for the baby, you just have a longer rest period. Yeah. So your 60 minute workout might thing. take two hours. Yeah. But right. if you, you know, it's a Saturday and um, you're like watching the kid, mm -hmm. air quotes, watching the kid as this happens and mom or husband can go do something else. Uh, and you're just okay with having a little bit longer rest periods, which yeah, we know yeah. VO2 max perfectly fine to have yes. a little bit longer. Yeah. Depending on what you're after base and build. Certainly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and this is too just maintaining fitness, right? Like we're in this aspect. So it's better than, than nothing. Yep. Um, oh, yeah. That works really well as our kid got to, and then what happens too is every parent I've talked to, they, they go like, oh, my kid's starting to sleep through the night and they do start to, but then they get teeth. And then it starts all over where they they don't sleep. And the then they don't want naps during the day. Yep. And those naps start to disappear, right? Yeah. And then yeah. the naps during the day, like, yeah, there's this sweet spot too where uh, the kid can, like my kids could nap while with the trainer sound. Yeah. Like it was like white noise. Yeah. And they could nap there. But as they get older, they, the naps are shorter. So there is this sweet spot where they sleep, maybe wake up once or twice at night. And if you can manage that with your partner better and then while you're, uh, you can really time the nap and you just yeah. kind of pray and hope that it, it works well. <laughs> yeah. But, um, as they get older with like Jonathan's age, one thing that we did that was really good is we, the kid had their own room. We got rid of the crib. So we actually just took the mattress out and put the mattress straight on the floor. Mm -hmm. So there's only like this much room. And then the whole room is baby proofed. And I have like the, uh, you know, the shelves have like connected. So you can't pull over the shelf. Mm -hmm. Anything they can do is fine. And then we actually, it's bad, but we locked my son in his room <laughs> because what he would do is he would come out and open the door. But in the morning he can get up and he doesn't cry to get out of his crib. He gets up and he just plays with toys. Yeah. It's good development stuff. He just crawls over, starts playing with toys. We can hear him. Some people have cameras. But if you want to like in the morning work out in that time and say, hey, my kids, I'm always gonna open the door at seven, mm -hmm. right? And be consistent on that. Well, if they wake up at 5.30 and they play and they, if kind of what I've seen is if they don't hear you, they don't think you're there. Yeah. Right. And as soon as they hear you, my son goes, I'm awake, I'm awake. <laughs> but that can also be a good tip to like structure that training time in yeah. the morning. That's a good, that's a good idea. We've actually, we've done the same with the bed. So that's a good idea to kind of open that up. Yeah. Um, I, I think that it's, there's the, you know, that whole thing where, you know, you have a child and, and there's, they say dad speed, which I've, I've heard that term thrown around a lot. And to be frank, I, I don't believe in that. And I've gone through it firsthand. It's not dad speed at all. Um, but what I do think uh, happens is it forces you to be very analytical and efficient with what you can do on the bike. And, 
And hopefully this is giving you guys some tips. And uh, triathletes, the best, I mean, obviously is you get a bob stroller and you go take the kids for a run. Yeah. And they have like, when it gets colder, you can do like the windshields. It's like a rain shield for wind <laughs> and you can Keeps bundle them up. And what I do is, you know, you touch their cheeks and touch their hands. And if those are warm, they're fine. Yeah. So uh, being able, you can go for an hour run and they're like usually happy in a stroller, yeah. usually, but not always. But uh, trainer and stroller is perfect. Yeah, that's a good one. And hopefully this applies to a lot of people that don't, uh, maybe if you don't have kids, but you just have a really demanding job. Same thing, right? So Same principles. Uh, Adam says, uh, Wasson, and apparently that's Cornish for hello. I didn't even know that was a language. <laughs> I know, right? He says, cyclocross is now in full swing in the UK now, and I've been training super hard all year with, with cross season being my main goal. I've been so happy with where my fitness is, but the dreaded, but I've been losing so much time out on the course with the sharp corners and cornering in general, especially on the right hand turn for some reason. Hmm. My question, um, maybe he, maybe he's a good NASCAR driver who knows, (laughs) (laughs) says, my question is, could you recommend some decent drills I could do to really improve my cornering techniques? If I could nail these, I'll be flying. Just saying, stay rad from Adam. Stay rad. Um, so yeah, I, I, we've, I know Chad's, you know, obviously with coaching athletes for, for quite some time now, and then, uh, working with juniors and then Nate, you've obviously like focused on improving your bike handling specifically too. Um, I think we all have some stuff to add to this. One thing I wanted to open up with, I see a lot of people ask if I was to ride the rollers, would that make me a better bike handler? Like people ask, like I'm considering these devices and the, mm. the pro usually of rollers that people assume is that it makes you a better bike handler. And uh, Chad and I talked about this yesterday and, and uh, cause I ride rollers and I don't believe it makes you a, I don't believe it will help your cornering specifically. Uh, I'm not sure it'll make you a better bike handler either. It'll definitely give you better right. balance on the bike. And mm-hmm. if you can take that balance and, and let that benefit your bike handling, mm-hmm. but, but in terms of cornering for instance or, or yeah. really anything else riding in a in a in a pack uh yeah it's subtle like there are it does for example riding with no hands is a whole lot easier and more comfortable for me now after mm-hmm. riding the rollers all the time right i think the reason for that is because riding the rollers since your front wheel is decoupled from your back wheel it allows you or it's it, it's not as stable right so it requires you to relax with your arms and your shoulders and your neck that in and of itself may actually make you a better bike handler so yeah. if you learn better balance on the rollers and you can re- maintain a more relaxed p- posture regardless mm-hmm. of the circumstances that will certainly lend itself to better bike handling yeah you know if you ride uh, outside and you go and take a water bottle you don't realize how much torque you're putting on your handlebars when you like reach down and pull your bottle out and put it in but then when you're on rollers and all that's decoupled it's really made evident so <clears throat> So it teaches you to ride with your core. So yes, but honestly, I feel like the gains would be marginal compared to doing specific drills and, and other things. Yeah. Far better ways to spend your time actually getting outdoors and drilling. Yeah. How would you, what are some drills that you've worked on? So ones we use, they're pretty commonplace in any coaching clinic or anything of that sort, uh, figure eights. So just like they sound, you just make figure eights and then, and then reverse that direction. And as your skill improves, the figure eights get a little tighter mm-hmm. to the point where you've really got your front wheel turned yet. It's still not challenging your balance. How yeah. fast are you going? Super slow. There's no reason those need to be done quickly. You can save the speed for actual cornering drills. This is this in the grass? Um, we've done on? it on the parking lot. You can do it on the grass if you fear that you know falling is is mm-hmm. pretty likely. But uh, it's it's very easy to control on the speed. And I'm thinking, geez, five eight miles per hour. Yeah, yeah, even lower in many cases. Mm-hmm. Just and those tight turns. If that, yeah, because yeah. I found that when you tighten things up with your drills in terms of the the turns, right, and they're they're a tighter arc. 
once you get out onto the course, it's amazing. Like everything feels much less intimidating, oh, yeah. right? Yep. Because you're used to something that's much tighter, even though you do it at a slower speed. So well, we would do these drills prior to, uh, one of our local criteriums and then mm -hmm. they go out and race the criterium. And every time the feedback was, I felt so much better. I mean, it was, it was immediate. Is, yeah. is that? Yeah. Uh, so another one is, and this one is a good one to do on the grass too, in the beginning, uh, bottle pickups. Yeah, bottle pickups or anything. So you can take a bottle and, and set it up high. The taller the bottle, easier it is going to be to grab. As you get more proficient with this particular drill, you can actually set the bottle on its side. Um, you can. We've had, we've had people pick up quarters. So I mean, and get to the what? point where they can. Oh yeah, it's, it sounds ridiculous, but the, the fact is, they get to a point where there, it doesn't matter where their body position is; they can keep their bike upright, yeah. and that's a big win. Yeah. So, and what those are basically, you set an object on the ground, and you have to pick that object up while riding by on your bicycle. It's mm -hmm. not done at a, at a high rate of speed. Yeah. Um, not pedaling. Nope. Uh, you're just coasting by and you're grabbing that thing. And it's a really good thing to teach you that, like you said, decoupling and bike body separation is something that every person, triathletes, everybody should learn. Like, even if you watch, uh, like, um, I'm thinking of like, uh, Cancellara, for example, uh, when he time trials and he's going over bumps and everything else, he's a very strong guy in that position. But if you watch a lot of the time, he'll even, he'll hover, like, you know, he'll lift his, he'll lift his butt slightly from the saddle, or he'll separate his bike from his body just to mm -hmm. maneuver around a pothole or whatever else it is. They're very good at doing that. And that's what I've found bottle pickups teaches you is it's not over if you move from that position. In fact, it's totally okay. You can pull your arm all the way down to the ground yeah. and pick up a quarter. Yeah, right? it goes both ways too. I mean, your body maintains one line and your bike goes entirely in another. So so that's just another type of decoupling mm -hmm. where you just gain a sense of that it, it's not it won't result in catastrophe if the two do separate things. And I find that I don't like in cross and mountain biking, mountain biking better, but in cross, I don't do that. And that's probably why I'm slower because you, mm. you have to, lean the bike, but then lean a different way. Right. Totally. And this is okay. I'm going to do this drill. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, good. it's actually pretty fun too. The best way you can do it with cyclocross is hand ups. So <laughs> they're doing that for you all the time, right? They're giving you opportunities that <laughs> put that bacon on the grass. <laughs> exactly. Pick it up. Yeah. Get that dollar bill. Yeah. They'll, they'll definitely put beers on the ground and everything else for you to pick up. So, uh, cross is giving that to you. One thing that we did with our juniors, uh, I find the kids, especially when they start riding, uh, they ride with, with death grips on the bars, right? And uh, so the mountain bikes or road bikes, doesn't matter. Uh, you ride with a death grip on the bars. So we did a loop that's fairly challenging. Like I would say it's, you know, above beginner abilities, but all the riders, the kids that I was training at this point, they're all, they're all plenty fine with that. Uh, we do the loop with both hands. And then I told them, okay, now you have to do it with one hand off the whole entire loop. And, Which loop? Uh, it's it's a local one in Reno that's Podunk is the All trail right. that they do. So uh, it's like a short one mile loop, but if they're one and a half mile loop, I think, but we would do it. And then after that, you'd have to ride it with just your left hand on the bars. Even like downhill? Even downhill. Oh. And then just your right hand on the bars. I did tell them that if there was a situation, I tried to pick the trail appropriately. Safety first. Yeah. yeah that yeah. trail didn't have a situation where I felt like, you know, if they were braking with their front brake, it wasn't steep enough to yeah. cause any problems. Right. So uh, don't send them down a gnarly downhill trail and say that to do that. Yeah, so one break. there's no rock gardens. There are little rocky sections, but there's nothing like really dangerous. And I would have them ride with one hand and everything, everybody would say in the beginning, oh my goodness, I'm so sketchy, right? Cause you go over bumps and your wheel turns a lot. And the reason it does that is because 
you've taken one arm off. So now your death grip has doubled on that other arm and it's really bad. And it brings that awareness to you that a death grip is bad. Well, that's it. It proves to, it, it makes you aware of two things. One, that relaxation is key. Mm-hmm. And two, that it is your control comes from your body, not from your appendages. Yes. Uh, or proper control does. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Because you can kind of, you can fake that control with, with, you know, your exactly. hands on yeah. your bars, but it only gets you so far because in tricky situations, it bites you. So what they end up doing is they end up relaxing. And then I, I have to tell them, relax that arm, make it so that, and I tell them the whole time, move your fingers around like a wave on your bars, right? Like that's how relaxed your hand should be. Even when they're going through bumpy little rocky stuff. And then usually toward the top of it, all of them say, my abs hurt. I'm tired. <laughs> you know, like my core is tired. And it's because they're learning to use that. And then we switch to the other hand. Uh, it's one thing that I feel like it, like we talked about, teaches you to ride with your core and through your, through your trunk, I should say, is yeah. actually a more appropriate Stabilize term. Stabilize with your hips. Yep, exactly. And this, it really helps. Yeah. This goes too to what um, the video we did with Lee, mm-hmm. where we talked about not putting pressure, like for me, if pressure through the bottom bracket, not through my hands, like yes. pulling or something, because if, and if you only have one hand and you have the pressure forward on it, you're going to turn. <laughs> exactly. And if you get pressure back, you're going to turn the other way. Yeah. So that's a really good tip to be able to, like uh, get the get in the right position, but weighting your bike correctly. Yes, that's cool. It's it's all coming. That's yeah. cool. <laughs> and work your way into it. Like uh, you know, if this is a situation where just riding on a road at first is where you want to feel comfortable, do that and work into your one-handed drills. I've even seen um, some some coaches that was on the trainer teach. too, for that matter. Totally. Yeah, it's a yeah. good point. Uh, you can tell when you're bouncing around and unstable, and you feel like there's a lot of pressure and uh, or I should say, you know, strain going through your arm. You can relax that. I've seen people doing this also with criteriums, like teaching people to ride the criterium course one-handed. And the reason for that is once again, teaching them to relax with their arms. But also there are so many situations in a criterium where I have to take a hand and I just have to place it on somebody's hip to let them know, hey, I'm here. You know what I mean? And and there's no telling when you need to do that. So I just yell, watch out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Usually always gets a crazy reaction. Um, what, what other ones, uh, Chad? Um, if you're a mass start racer and mm-hmm. this you know, applies to cyclocross racers, uh, mountain bike rater, racers, at least, especially in the early, you know, the race starts, the yeah. earlier phases of races, um, certainly criterium riders, road riders and all that, but we do bumping drills. So, and these are obviously low speed, probably on the grass to start with. Yes. Probably on the grass the whole time, really. You can really actually have quite a lot of fun with it if you're not afraid of falling over. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's just what it sounds. You just ride in a group of people and it can be two riders, it can be 10 and just get comfortable with making body contact with people. And uh, an alternative to that is jousting, where you actually physically try to knock each other off the bikes. Mm-hmm. Again, something to do on the grass and at low speeds, but it teaches you a, ho- a whole lot of control, how to stay relaxed, how to stay in control of your bike when your body's all over the place. Mm-hmm. And that contact is not a bad thing. Contact is going to happen. And the more you're familiar with it, the less you're going to panic or, or tense up when it does. Yeah, because mm-hmm. that's it's probably the uh, the reaction that gets you, not the initial contact. Yeah, oh, exactly right. Yeah. Exactly. That's why when, for instance, when two riders make contact, the last thing you want to do is veer off one another. Whereas if you were to stay relaxed, you'd actually lean on each other for a second, not overreact and regain control. You might get kicked out of the Tour de France if you do that, though. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. (laughs) So watch out. We'll see if they stand by that this year again. Um, Something with that, too, I've seen uh, really, really, you know, skilled riders. They'll even get into situations where they're like their bars are hooked on another rider. And you know what? And that's like, that's it. a bad time. Oh, yeah. And and those riders still stay super calm. And yeah, if you can save that, you're a yeah. real good bike rider. Another benefit of the bumping drills. Uh, now, granted, you're falling on grass, hopefully, but uh, it teaches you that 
falling over is not the worst thing in the world. Mm -hmm. It teaches you how to fall over and not just go straight under your shoulder and your collarbone. Um, it can teach you some stuff that basically makes you think like when you're crashing, you, your life might not flash before your eyes in that moment. And you can, then you'll be able to be like, okay. I can also teach it. you that you can save quite a lot in terms of, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people just abandon hope. And as soon as that front wheel turns or they lose the front wheel or anything, they just give up. They just yeah. accept they're going to crash and that's it. I'm going <laughs> yeah. down. But you, know, you watch Peter Sagan, you watch Ken Shalar, you watch these guys who are really good at avoiding those crashes and responding to bad situations. You can save a lot. To me, Cross really opened up my eyes on that yeah. because I got to the point where like with a mud race, I'd crash a lot but then it didn't hurt. And I'm like, well, I can save these, mm. right? Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And along those lines, skids, that's another good thing to work on. Uh, I think that mountain biking and cross are great opportunities for this with road riding. I wouldn't recommend working on it. <laughs> um, you just, it, it's, it's okay to, to, you know, skid the rear end and stuff and get used to that and find that breaking point. But with mountain biking and cross, the reason that I like skidding and learning to, to use that. Now I don't use it on trails uh, out of, I don't, I, you have to be kind to trails, but uh, the reason that I don't, um, or that I want to do that is because I, I want to be comfortable if I'm skidding. I don't want to think that it's all over, just like you guys mentioned. Yeah, so again, it's familiarization. You yeah. got to know that when you lose that rear tire, sometimes it's intentional. And even when it's not, again, it's something that could be saved. It's useful and it's going to happen. I went through a whole mountain bike season where I didn't skid. That it crossed where I did skid, and it came back to mountain biking and felt comfortable. Mm. Yeah, and it it's a, it opens it up. It's I'm, amazing. Yeah, so it was a good good tip. Yeah, going into line choice too, and that's is kind of the last thing we want to cover on this. But um, and something that kind of plays into this is uh, skinnies they're called, which is basically just a board that you ride on or a bridge or something like that. And in mountain biking, you see them all in you know it's like famous footage from British Columbia when they're in the forest and they ride those things. You can build your own, and all you need is a two by four. Um, but what we do with juniors a lot of the time is we'll bring out the two by four and we have them try to ride on it and they fall off invariably very quickly. And then what we'll do is we'll take that two by four away and then we'll just have them ride from me to you, right? Like a, just a straight line. And then you can see their tire track in the grass. And in most cases it's like perfectly straight, right? And then you show them that, see, you're totally capable of riding straight. It's just chances are your focus is in the wrong spot. And then once you get them to look ahead and just to relax and just to ride, then they're able to stay. It's right the same on. with turning. You don't want to micromanage it and stare right in front of you, whether rather you look past it and the control is just so much easier to attain. Yeah. Uh, let's cover some line choice stuff. Well, here. two, yeah. another um, parking lot, white. Yes. Lines, that's another lines. one, right? Yeah. That's easy to ride. Yeah. Totally. But if you're six inches off the ground, it's suddenly hard. Yeah. I don't know why. <laughs> it's kind of funny, right? Yeah. Uh, Greater consequences. Well, I have one more question about that. Yeah. How often would kids then, if you're on the skinny and you mm -hmm. go off, do they like unclip and freak out rather than... No, we teach them that too, like, cause it's just a two by four. And then we do have one situation where it's like, you know, like maybe nearly a foot off the ground. Right. And uh, that one's just like a little bridge. Uh, but even then they fall off of that, like their wheels fall off, but we teach them the same thing from finding Nemo. Just, right just, just keep swimming, but yeah. just keep pedaling. Right. Yeah. And you just keep pedaling and they, they find out, oh, okay. It's, it's almost its own right. good drill. Yeah. Like totally. falling off of that and not oh, yeah, sure. out. Yeah, absolutely is. Uh, with line choice. So we've, covered like a lot of things that can help, but if you have poor line choice, you're still going to be sketchy <clears throat> on the bike, especially in corners. And your main goal with a turn, theoretically in perfect circumstances is to lessen the arc of the turn, right? In other words, to make it more broad, not make it as sharp. Mm -hmm. So the way that's usually done is instead is looking at the turn and saying, enter as wide as I can, and then exit as wide as I can. And in most cases, what you'll do is you'll have in the center of that, that'll be the apex. And in most cases, you'll want to cut a short line through that turn. So that'll be close to the inside, right? 
that's an ideal situation. And in many cases, especially when we're talking cross and mountain biking or with road racing, there's a person in the way or a pothole or something else. You can't take that line. Um, but in an ideal world, that's the one you want to take. And it allows you to preserve speed. It Which is really the overall the objective. Goal. Yeah. yeah. The, the whole idea is to preserve speed. And by lessening that arc, it allows you to do exactly that. Yeah. Which means less effort coming out of the turn mm -hmm. because you won't have to accelerate. Usually greater traction, better traction. Yep. Yeah. It's it's going to be better in, in most cases. Now, the edge cases that will change this, though, ruts and cyclocross especially, especially the, the recent World Cup, <laughs> the sand, right? Plenty of ruts. Um, but uh, ruts, you're going to have bumps, rocks, surface that varies. For example, you might have a spot on, in a road one where you've got some gravel on a turn or in a certain spot, you should not be making your turn over that section where it's uh, loose and gravelly, right? On top of the, the asphalt. And then off camber as well, you want to like weigh all of those things. So in an ideal world, yes, enter wide, hit the apex at the center on the inside and then exit wide and maintain all that speed. But otherwise you have to look at things and just think, okay, well, if I have a bump there, then I'm going to have to shift my line. And the main thing though, with this, once again, we're talking about lines in a turn and you have to look at those things long before you get to it. Right. It's pretty straightforward. So yep, and with like the tighter turns on the, on the mazes and whatnot, the, the off camber often enough, and usually some sort of challenging terrain is to break before the turn. We didn't, we didn't mention that, but if you carry a bunch of speed into the turn and you're committed to the turn and then you decide to get on the brakes, it's probably not going to go too well. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you just prior to the turn, get on the brakes quickly, scrub off just a little bit of speed and carry a little less speed into the turn, it's going to be a more controlled turn. Yep. So, and you can build up that, that sort of uh, skill over time. Just learn how much speed you can carry through a turn. Start easy, you know, something that you can control and get right every time and then build that confidence. And then of course, carry greater and greater amounts of speed into those turns. Yep. I recommend watching MotoGP or Formula One and your line choice will improve. So it really helps. Um, Next question, and this one is actually kind of uh, the result of many questions uh, that we've received over, over some time now about the differences between normalized power and average power. So we kind of wanted to go into that, into something called variability index and explain the whole thing to, to you guys here. So um, Nate- I, I, I can do this. Yeah, this is, this is definitely in your wheelhouse. What, what is average power? Okay, so average power, also known as AP, <clears throat> is just simple average of your watts. Now, a key thing that people with different head units, and depending on what year you bought it and what software you have, is some head units will, um, you can have a setting, don't include zeros, which is, in my mind, the dumbest thing should never be on there <laughs> yeah. ever. Um, so what you want to do is always turn off the, make sure that it includes zeros. Uh -huh. So uh, whatever your head unit is, and because of that, what you can do is, if it doesn't include zeros, that means anytime I'm coasting and not putting out watts, don't include that in the average. But that'll make your average like a yeah, bajillion It's not watts. a useful average. Yeah. Imagine, imagine going up a climb and then not pedaling going down, then going up the climb, not pedaling going down. You're recovering that whole time and you know it's not going to be representation. It's, it's don't do it. Yeah. Okay. So then the next one is NP or normalized power. Mm -hmm. So normalized power was uh, developed by Dr. Andrew Coggin. Is it Coggin or? Coggin. Yeah, Coggin, Coggin, right? Mm -hmm. Um and normalized power training peaks then trademarked it later and they use it and that's like the history of it but basically it's a weighted um, average of your power and that was developed because of zeros and average power so you're doing something like a criterion you will get a very low average power relative to your effort level like yes. you, you'll be putting out tons of power but mm -hmm. a low average power normalized power weights the uh 
the harder efforts more than the lower efforts, and it puts a, a, a lower weighting to the zero watts. And the theory behind this is that normalized power generally will have, if you look at normalized power, it's a good way to compare workout to workout or time frame to time frame. And what that does is it- uh, It normalizes the physiologic cost. Yep, okay. so it should be like, supposedly it's what you could have done if you were average. If uh -huh. you were like, so if I had a, a race where in a crit, my average power was 220, but my normalized power was 300, theoretically, I should be able to ride 300 watts uh -huh. at that same- that, that For average, that duration. For that duration, yep. yep. That's there the are, theory, yep. There are some, it, it stands up pretty well. Pretty well. There are some caveats where they call them NP busters and they're like extremely anaerobic efforts. Um, I, if you do an NP buster, you probably know it. And I wouldn't really worry about that can day I, to day. Can yeah. I cover something on this really quick? Cause we get a lot of people, I don't know, we have all seen this too, cyclocross. After a cyclocross race, we don't even feel like our, you know, you're completely gassed, but your normalized power is still far lower than what it felt like, if that makes sense, like far lower than like, if you had just gone out and done a time trial and averaged 220 Watts it would have been very easy. But in this case, your normalized power might say 220. So there are some situations and I know yeah, we've gotten a lot of perfect. questions. Yeah. And you can't make perfect. a, but it's still pretty good. Yeah. And so if you do see low normalized power after a race, like cyclocross or something else, know that you're not alone. That's how it goes. And you kind of have to just isolate those ones, you know, and, and separate them. In the normalized power calculation, there's a 30 second rolling average. And because of that, um, don't look at normalized power for anything less than five minutes. I've heard Coggin actually say 20, 20 or 30 minutes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think our software, we limited at five. We once raised to 30. We got a lot of backlash. Yeah. So we did that. Really, I mean, it's best to look at for an entire, I like looking at it for my entire ride, yeah. not just little segments or intervals that I do inside of it. Agreed. Um, there is one situation where you might get average power higher than normalized power. I know it sounds impossible, but the only one I've seen, and, and you can do like this is mathematically possible, is if you're doing a shorter interval and you have something like a Wahoo kicker that artificially smooths smooths your power output. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and you go from a very low wattage to a very high wattage. You do the interval, and then you go to a very low wattage. If you look at just that interval, and remember, it's taking that 30 seconds before, you can get a higher average power than normalized power. And I think. Sense. Really indoor training with a Wahoo kicker is like the only situation you should ever have that. If you use just a power meter, I don't think you should ever get that. Um, outside, it's so variable, you'll never get that. So you should- And you only get it in real time, right? You wouldn't get it on a ride file. No, you would get it like, so if you looked, if you just looked at the normalized power for only that interval, yeah. and let's say you you hit that target exactly right. Hmm. Um, it's, I didn't, our CTO explained to me once in math and he's got a math degree. And I was like, okay, that sounds right. Yeah. but. It makes it's, sense it's, though. It's actually. possible only if you do, uh, only if it's not very variable for the, the interval. And so the Wahoo kicker, because it smooths that okay. data is the only time. But it's as a result of the kicker smoothing. Exactly. So, yep. If okay. you're, if you're a little more variable, yeah. it'll bump the normalized power up enough that it'll be uh, different than the average power I or see. the same as the average okay. power. But you shouldn't see this on a ride file. Like no, you no. go and ride outside, your normalized power should never be lower than your average. Yes, exactly. So if you do like an hour long crit and for some reason your average power is higher than normalized, like something's wrong. Sums up. Yeah. yeah. Sums up. And if something's up, like one thing, and, and there, there are a lot of theories on this, uh, whether it's smart pausing and you had something pause and throw something off and maybe didn't pair, who knows. 
smart recording. Oh yeah, that's um, another one. Is Turn another one smart recording off? Yeah, I don't think unless you're a RAM writer, you really don't need smart recording. And that means smart recording is the ability to only record something every like three seconds or five seconds oh, yeah. instead of every second. And usually when we say recording every second, what we're doing is sampling. Mm -hmm. So a power meter might output power data four times a second, mm -hmm. but what we'll do is sample. So at a second interval, we'll then collect whatever the data was at that second. Mm -hmm. And what smart recording does is changes that interval from every second to every five seconds, or I, I think it goes even more. Just to extend memory or data uh, it's, storage? It's, it's more battery power. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. But now head units are so good, like their battery power is many, really? many, yeah. many hours, right? So yeah. as long as you have a fresh battery, you should be fine. And I think the lack of data, um, you, you, you want more data always. So yeah. turn off smart recording. That's another way where you could get in trouble and have weird numbers. Weird numbers. Um, how about power smoothing? Uh, can you explain that? Because a lot of people, um, uh, they question if power smoothing is affecting yep. their data like so this. So between there's smart recording and there's power smoothing. Smart recording is actually recording the data, but power smoothing is changing the display of the data. So like mm -hmm. on a Garmin, you can have a three second, a five second, I think like a 30 second power smoothing. In Trainer Row 2, we let you choose how many seconds you're power smoothing. That only reflects the, uh, the display. So not the recording. And that's better, um, what that will help is, again, that uh, like on Trainer Road, if we get an update once every four or four times a second, mm -hmm. we display every output mm -hmm. on, on, on the display, like on your up, your head unit or on, on the, on, on the software. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And what power smoothing, I like a little five second power smoothing. What mm -hmm. that does is it makes it a little less jumpy. And if you're trying to, it's a little easier mentally to, to yeah. get that average in mm -hmm. because really your power meters, like nobody is perfectly smooth. Yeah, nobody's smooth, it's, we, that's how it works. We also get this question a lot too. Someone will switch to a kicker then switch mm -hmm. away from a kicker. I just saw someone else write an article on this too. Yeah. And they'll be frustrated because with a kicker, it says that they're like zero or one watts different than the target. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then oh, with no. a power meter, they'll go like up 10 and below 10 and we'll kind of go up and down like this and really, while you're riding the kicker, your power is doing that, but the display is showing you something different. Exactly. So going back to Matt Fitzgerald too, it's like, maybe it is a feature because I, I you, you worry about it less. Yeah, yeah. It's almost, it's hard to go to the kicker than back. I think if you've never been on a kicker, um, yeah. you don't feel that. Or if you've used a power meter with a kicker the whole time. Yeah. Um, so just don't, you can change power smoothing and it doesn't affect it. Another thing is with the graph that you're looking at, um, I'm going pretty, I'm That's going fine. deep, guys. That's fine. It's okay. good. It's good. Um, okay, so let's say you're looking at a like a five hour ride, yeah. right? On um, and every every hour ride will have 3,600 points. Okay, right, 3,600 seconds. Yeah. Yep. So that means 3,600 points. You have a five hour ride. That's five times that, right? So a lot of points. If your screen, let's say, has 1,280 pixels of resolution across, and you put all of those points in it, what will happen is you will have like it'll pretty much look like someone had a marker, and it'll be really thick. Yeah. You can't, you won't be able to look at your results and tell what's happening. So on displays, with like graphs afterwards, we'll smooth that data, and usually we'll smooth that data based on the resolution of the screen, so you can still kind of see the shape of your workout. Uh -huh. um, we have a new, new thing coming out fairly soon. Uh, probably, yeah. I don't want to say it's very, very soon with a way, way, I think best in class, um, analytics for, uh, analyzing a workout. Right. Yeah. And we're going to have the ability to zoom in on data. That's, that's really good so that you can see, um, if you zoom in enough where you have enough pixels, then you can see the per second recording. Yeah. But just, so you know, that like, um, the display data is going to be smooth in just about every platform. If you don't, you'll tell it cause it just looks like a big scribble mark. Um, 
And that is not adjusting the way the data is recorded, just the way that it's seen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, and just one last thing, it's very normal to see your normalized power be higher than your average power. I see people sometimes writing in wondering. 99.9%. Exactly. And they're wondering why is it so different uh, with more variability in the effort as in like, you know, big, hard efforts like that. Like Nate mentioned, there's some situations where it's so much that they'll call it like an NP buster because it over represents perhaps. But uh, the difference between that normalized power and that average power is something that we call variability index or mm-hmm. VI. And it's typical like in a tri- in, in a time trial or a bike split in a triathlon, you should be looking for something between, you know, one to 1.05 for your variability, variability index. Mm-hmm. A really well-paced effort will be like a 1.01, 1.02. Yep. And that says you are super smooth. And all that is is normalized power divided by average power, yeah. right? I believe so. Friel came up with that too. I don't think that was Coggins. I'm not sure. Sh- uh, I'm going to get yelled at. Yeah. I think it was for real, but I'm not sure. But I okay. think Friel did it to, to actually then um, tell his triathletes, uh, Joe Friel, famous coach, uh, mm-hmm. big triathlete coach, to be like, you didn't pace this correctly. Mm-hmm. He wanted to measure. And that's the ratio between those two numbers. Yep. And in like something like a typical road race or a criterium, you'd see somewhere around 1.1, maybe even up to as high as something like 1.3 if it's super surgy. But uh, if it's something that's above 1.3, maybe your mountain bike, cyclocross, something like that. Um, but once again, cyclocross has its own issues with all the coasting time that you have. So uh, if you're seeing numbers that are far above that, or if you're seeing something that's a negative or a below 1.0 variability index, then chances are something's a little weird. Yep. So hopefully that gave everybody like a direct walkthrough on that one. Uh, Sean, he says, I'm from Lancashire in the UK. I weigh 63.5 kilograms and my current FTP is around 285 Watts. I started time trialing this year by using trainer road to train. And I saw gradual improvements over the season and smashed my goal times for both 10 mile and 25 mile distances. I also got on the podium for my age category in two events, which I was pleased as punch with. Nice. I like that saying, pleased as pleased punch. As punch. Mm, that's good. As the season comes to uh, comes near its end, we have a short but brutal hill climb event season, which are essentially time trials up many of our short but very steep hills. I I want this tradition here in the States. I don't know why the UK is the only one that has it. That would be really fun, right? I don't. Yeah. Uh, criterion plans and try to... So uh, forgive me. He says that... Uh, He's working on the, with a climbing road race plan and criterion plans, and he's trying to add a bit of injection into his diesel physiology. So I am, and I assume that he's implying that he's a steady state. Steady state power, yeah. Guy. Yeah. He wants to add some, some kick to it. Yeah. He says, as I near my main events for the hill climbs, I notice that the taper workouts are approximately 45 minutes in length and have quite short cooldowns. And as I'm now 45 years old, I find that if I only have a short warm up and a short cooldown, my legs are quite sore the next day. So I usually keep spinning for eight to 10 minutes. I started to wonder though, is this altering the intended effect of the set of these said shorter workouts? But then I thought if Chris Froome always insists on a 10 minute zone one cooldown, I can't, it can't do me any harm. I'd like to know though, if I'm wasting my time and adding an extra cooldown to these taper workouts, many thanks for train road on the podcast. Both have helped me change the way I ride and now more productive and faster. Cool. Yeah. So one of the downsides of the pretty narrow windows we try to get our workouts done within uh, is that we have to shortchange something. I've talked about this before. Last thing I want to do is shortchange the warm up because that comes at the expense of the rest of the workout. Can't shortchange the main main set. I mean that is the workout. So it typically falls that the cool down is whatever's left, mm-hmm. and sometimes that's as short as a minute. I always make the assumption that if riders want to cool down, they're simply going to cool down. And I know we have plans to enable some option at some point in time that will allow you to extend the cooldown mm-hmm. super quickly, really easily. 
<laughs> I probably shouldn't have said anything. <laughs> It'll be at some point that'll be available. I just gave Chad a death look. <laughs> but in any case, cooldowns are absolutely not a waste of time, and there is a reason that Sky does it. Um, first off, there's no ill effect to it. I mean, you're talking another ten minutes on your ride. You're, that's not going to add up to any significant amount of TSS or additional stress that you should be avoiding. Not even on a taper ride. Um, it's also a super good time to start your post-workout nutrition if you're really concerned with reloading glycogen and you know just basically uh, avoiding some of the downsides of, of uh, carbohydrate denial, which I'm all too familiar with. Um, it's a really good time to to get that rolling. But I think the reason Team Sky supports it so much and, and it's become part of Chris Froome's uh, post-race pattern. I mean, mm-hmm. every race you see him on the trainer yeah, afterward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, every time. Um, is because it, it enables uh, basically recovery of your endocrine system or, or lymph removal. And, and there's a lot of things that, that um, spike during the workout. Um, epinephrine, norepinephrine, a lot of catecholamines, um, cortisol rises, obviously lactate comes up. These are all things that take a long time to normalize, and you, you can facilitate that process a bit by doing a cool down. Mm-hmm. And this is of, of keen importance if you're going to bed right afterwards. Last thing you want is all these things ramped up and you're going to try to get into bed because that's going to make for some fitful sleeping at best. On top of that, that poor sleep is going to further exacerbate your issues with cortisol. And cortisol, you know, after the fact, when we don't need it there, it's it's rather harmful. So a lot of these things uh, are, are improved. So the, the removal of them from the system, it takes place just that much quicker. So for that reason alone, basically what you're doing is you're, you're facilitating muscle repair. That is the big get with this. And I think that's why you are sore the next day when you, when you, you know, bypass your cool down. Yeah. Now, and this isn't to say that somebody might be able to do just fine with the five minute cool down, right? Like it, it doesn't necessarily have to be as is what it is. I mean, if you wake up the next day and you're sore, five minutes probably wasn't sufficient. And it also, you know, it has, has something to do with the, the composition of the workout too. Microburst versus, you know, working at 60%. You're probably not going to need much of a cool down after a, a butter burner ride, as opposed to something that's highly intense. And age too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you, will it have effect? I know warm up with age know. usually older. You warm get up seems the, to take quite a bit longer. I've noticed yeah. that personally, and I've read quite a bit about that. As far as the cool down time to age, um, so what we recommend on Trainer Road, the easiest way to do it is once your workout's done, you go to workouts, you type in F R E E free, mm-hmm. and there's free a whole ride. bunch of free rides. Yeah. Just click, push the button, push start, and you're back in mm-hmm. it. Yep. Um, and then you can do whatever kind of the length of cool down that you want. Um, some people like a 30 minute cool down, and you can get. A 10 minute cool down, whatever yeah. you want. But basically, Chad, you're saying there's benefits to cool down. What percentage Absolutely. of FTP would be an effective cool down? Um, I would say anything over 50%. I'd, I'd under. Prefer- under. under oh, I'm sorry. Under, under 50 Yeah, right? nothing, do nothing over 50%. Great. Yeah. So keep it under 50% of threshold. I'd prefer riders were more at like 40, even 30%. All you're trying to do is spin your legs, keep the blood circulating. Mm-hmm. We've talked about the, um, like the golden window of getting nutrition in 20 minutes after intense exercise. Mm-hmm. And I, this is, I'm pretty anal and about the details, but this was before. And I used to do like climbs up Geiger, which is over here. And Geiger's yeah. like a 40 minute one. Yeah. And it would take me 20 minutes to descend. Yeah. And then you got to go home. <laughs> and I thought, you know what? I should probably take my on the descent. my drink <laughs> as soon as you climb, right? Get to the top, then do it. <laughs> because you're, the window's gone, yeah. like on the descent. I know that's probably carrying your recovery drink in your <laughs> pocket, but uh, that's what I <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, yeah, exactly. Right. That's very native, me, but, uh, especially the longer ones like Mount Rose, it could take, you know, mm-hmm. 30 minutes to get, sure. to get home from that. Uh, so that always messed me up. So trainer's better because right afterwards you can drink it. Mm-hmm. The other one I find out if I have an extended recovery, it's like, it's, I feel so accomplished. 
yeah. while you're you've done a really hard workout. Yeah. And then before I've moved on my brain and I'm like worried about the other things I have to do in my day, but I've like rewarded with this like 80 watt, 100 watt spin. Bask in the post-workout and flow. And I'm just like, I yeah. did it. I <laughs> did it. Especially if it was a hard workout. Yeah. Having that easy. Uh, it feels it, good. It feels good. Yeah. I want to like extend it for like two hours. Yeah. Still in the afterglow. <laughs> yep. Brett says, and this is going to be the, the last question for today. He says, can you talk about the effect of changing your crank length? Uh, this is another one that we, we is commonly debated. That's a very contentious issue. It is. He says, my special snowflake story in summary. I spent the past nine months recovering from a lower back injury, which has left me with tight hip flexors. I'm wondering if smaller cranks would help and figured crank length may be a general question that others may wonder about. And certainly others do wonder about this. Uh, thanks and love your show and trainer road. So, um, just specifically in his case, what I'm looking at here is the fact that, uh, you know, if he has lower back pain, uh, mm-hmm. or I should say he has, he got that surgery there and then he has tight hip flexors as a, as a result, or he's recovering from that injury, I should say. Uh, if anything, you would probably not want to have shorter crank arms in that situation. Right. Um, so he, something that we see, and actually let me take a step back. So the whole crank arm thing there's, uh, we'll get into like more of the specifics, but, uh, I want to, uh, address the fact that you see a lot of triathletes talking about crank length more, I find, or time trialists more than anybody else. And usually the main reason for that is, is hip angle. Like, yep. you know, you've got a really flat back, a, a, a deep hinge in your, in your, in your waist or in your hips. So then as a result, what you're trying to do is you're trying to get your lean knees out from your shoulders instead of hitting your chest. Right. Yeah. So in this case, I think he is right with the, at least his thinking and the, the shorter mm. cranks mean less hip flexion. It certainly would. Right. Um, so Shorter cranks would mean that you would be able to not, you wouldn't have have as severe of, of a fold. Mm-hmm. That said, let's keep things in context. Yes. So we're looking at, in most cases today, most cranks, and I know that there are outliers, but most cranks are 170, 172.5 or 175. Yeah. So we're there, talking a five millimeter margin. Yeah. So if, if, I mean, if you're making that with your fingers, we're talking like that much, you know, that's it's a really small much. amount. Yeah. It's, it's. It's, it's pretty small. Now that said, I know that there are 177 fives. I know there are one eighties. I know they're above that. And I know that it goes all the way down to like 140 possibly on crank length as well. It's tough to find those cranks. We're talking about usually what people are using is somewhere in between 170 to 175. So when you think about it in that respect, slightly rolling your pelvis back or slightly, you know, lifting up just a bit is probably going to have a more profound effect. Moving on, on the saddle, hip. softening your elbows. I mean, really any body change, body change in body position is probably going to negate anything that you would get. I, I just have a hard time believing that the difference of five millimeters is going to make any different, any, any significant difference in the case of tight hip flexors or low back pain. I did a 10 millimeter change for triathlon mm-hmm. and it did feel different. Like mm-hmm. it felt more open, mm-hmm. but I didn't have going back to being the podcast. Yeah, the circling, performance improved. My performance did not improve. Did low back pain. I, I didn't I have any low, low, it was It was supposed to be. So I didn't like, cause my knees were hitting my chest. Mm. They didn't hit my chest anymore, but mm. I, I didn't have any more aggressive position and I didn't have any more, uh, increase in power output. Exactly. I didn't go any faster. Right. I just it's spent just a lot of money. A small change. I'd yeah. love to see. I mean, I've, I've checked out a couple of studies and yeah. there's, there's nothing that, you know, steers you one way or the other. Really? There are people yeah, who yeah. feel very strongly about this matter, but again, sure. I, it, steer me towards something that's meaningful. Show me a study that, that helps me understand why this is a big deal. Yeah. Now, one thing to keep in mind with crank length, uh, 
remember that your bottom bracket can't move, but you are effectively making your cranks longer. And I've heard of people changing their crank length and, and if you and not changing their saddle height. And if you change your crank length, you should change your saddle yep. height in direct relation to that length increase, right? Because basically you're making your leg drop further down if you're getting a, a longer crank, or you're making that leg drop not as far down if you're getting a shorter crank arm. Uh, so if you're in a situation where you are changing that, make sure that your saddle height is changing in direct proportion with that. The only time I can think of that it's beneficial is one mountain biking because yeah. of shorter cranks, you get better clearance. Yeah. So That's less huge. pedal strikes. Yep. Mm -hmm. Uh, cross. So if you're getting, if you're getting, uh, strikes and cross, which you might over barriers, you could mm -hmm. try shorter crank lengths, but I wouldn't do that until you actually have that problem mm -hmm. or, um, crit riding. If you guys ever clipped a clipped oh, yeah. a plit on a oh, corner. Yeah. yeah. That is frightening. Yeah. I'm not sure five millimeters, even in that case is going to save me a whole lot, but Hey, I mean, when you hit it hard enough it. to skip your wheel, you're, you're more than five millimeters yeah, you're okay. getting invested down into, into the asphalt arm. there. Yeah. Pretty much. You know what you should <laughs> yeah. do is actually, I think in a crit is just not put that don't pedal through that corner. <laughs> That's yeah. a strong argument. Yeah. Um, I, now I hear a lot of people saying leverage, but leverage, uh, yes, technically, if you have a lot longer, if you Dude. have a longer crank arm, technically, yes. So many people come up to me and they're like, oh, you got long femurs. You must be a great cyclist. Mm. Then Yao Ming would be on the Tour de France <laughs> destroying people, right? Like, yeah, yeah. It's and something to add to this. Like, yes, technically you have more leverage, but at the same time, and I, I talked to my brother about this for a while. He's a mechanical engineer, um, to the nth degree, right? Uh, always geeking out about, uh, about leverage and mechanics and bikes especially. And we talked a lot about this. And in the end, any mechanical advantage you get with greater leverage, you gotta go farther. It's hard. Exactly right. So you're moving more tissue, right? In a further direction with that pedal stroke, you're also using muscles in a different way. In most cases, it ends up being nullified that, that leverage advantage when we're talking about this small margin, yeah, it's the know? power output. So if you go to a shorter crank, you're actually gonna have to spin faster to get the same amount of power. Mm -hmm. And if you get to a larger crank, you, you spin slower because you, you know, you're traveling a longer distance to, to carry that cork torque. Mm -hmm. it, it seems weird, but, uh, it, you don't, I think we would, a lot of people say like, oh, I get a longer crank or longer arms. We would have seen, uh, lots of studies that yes. then demonstrate this, that, oh yes, you can put out more power again. What is oh, yeah. the result? Um, Aerodyn lots of aerodynamics is a really good example. Look at TT bikes now compared to TD bikes like 10 years ago they're, they're almost like, it's like, it's all homogenized. Like they look very similar, right? Um, in certain situations, we would see a mass movement towards something, I guess, is the point that yeah. I'm getting at. Sometimes. Yeah. So yeah. Brett, well, your issue is, is tight hip flexors. It's not crank, crank length. Mm -hmm. So basically you need to address that. And we, I think we've talked about it before, but obviously stretching, rolling your hip flexors, rolling your quads. Yeah. Uh, that's, it's it's going to make you make life way more comfortable if you do that too. And in your yeah. different crank length will that not make life is more comfortable. The key. <laughs> get the, so. yeah, the Chad, you nailed it. Yeah. Don't worry about the equipment. Just get the hip flexors less tight oh, yeah. and your whole so life will be better. That's all this is about. Yep. You're not a special snowflake, Brett. Sorry. Not, not this, <laughs> on this Everyone. Yeah. Cause I'm, cause I'm one too then. <laughs> Me too. Yep. All right. Thanks everybody for joining us. Uh, you can submit your questions once again to trainerroadcom slash podcast, and we will talk to everybody next week. Thanks everybody. Thanks everybody. Bye. Bye.